All right, why don't you turn to John 3.16, please. That's our text. John 3.16, and the message is uh, entitled, The Gift of Love. Uh, What a joy Christmas is as we reflect on uh, God's blessings and uh, express our gratitude to one another, family and friends. And, um, And certainly there's nothing wrong with that. But if that's all that Christmas is, th- then we've missed the true meaning of Christmas because it's all about God's greatest gift, His Son, and the acknowledgement of our condition of lostness in need of forgiveness of sin. That's the bottom line. The situation is a critical and very serious matter, though we rejoice in it as believers. Um, we understand the greatness of God to have saved us. John Dewey was one of the most uh, influential of all men to be born. He was born in 1859, and he died in 1952, just two years after I was born. And one put it this way, quote, John Dewey became America's most influential humanistic educator. He refined uh, James' pragmatic philosophy and combined it with all the previous humanistic movements and made them into his so-called progressive education, otherwise known as instrumentalism. Dewey's new brand of secular education became the instrument through which Western mankind was thoroughly humanized. By the beginning of the 12th century, Western man was confined, uh, confident in his abilities, quite independent of the reliance of assistance from any supernatural power to solve all his problems and attain the goal of inevitable universal perfection. Humanism. The human uh, is manifesto, too, was uh, modeled after Dewey's, um, John Dewey's humanistic manifesto of 1933. And uh, it attacks God, the Bible, and any life of faith of Orthodox Christianity. Um, listen to what it says, and I'm quoting him a couple of the quotes. He says, Promise of immortality, salvation, or fear of eternal damnation are both illusory and harmful. They should be condemned. They perform disservice to the human species because they distract humans from present concerns, from self-actualization, which is a new age term now today, and progressive, and from the rectifying social injustices. The manifesto asserts in a hollow way that the good life is here and now Indeed, reason and intelligence are the most effective instruments that mankind possesses, end of quote. There's no room for God. And yet the first scientific men and men who were truly biblical philosophers believed in God. They trusted the scriptures, and we've moved away from that tremendously. No one has escaped the corruption of humanism in the American society. And for that reason, I want to speak to you about... Um, God's greatest gift to the world, His only begotten Son. Here in John 3.16, Luther calls John 3.16 the heart of the Bible, um, the gospel in miniature form. He says that so simple a child can understand it, it is so condensed and deep that the marvels of truth of redemption into these few pugnant words. And he moves to John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And he puts it this way, God, the greatest lover, so loved the greatest degree, the world, the greatest number, that he gave the greatest act, His only begotten Son, the greatest gift, that whosoever the greatest invitation believes 
the greatest simplicity. In him, the greatest person. Should not perish the greatest deliverance, but the greatest difference. Have the greatest certainty, eternal life, the greatest possession. One little verse. The most powerful verse in the New Testament. Twelve particulars that Luther points out. I want to give you three hooks to hang them on. Three categories as we move through them. First, the category of the greatness of God is presented. Second, you have the gift of God. And then the goal of God. It begins with the greatness of God. God, the greatest lover. God is love and his nature is, is incredible in this unfailing potential. It's different from our love. God's agape love is defined here in John 3.16, and that's simply in giving. First uh, John 4.16 says, And we have known and believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and he who abides in love abides in God and God in him. His love is so different from our, we're conditional, he's unconditional, though he cannot bestow the benefit of his love until we repent. There's, there, there's the key as we'll move through this. Um, you're all familiar with uh, one of the key uh, descriptions of agape love in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, 4 through 8. It says, agape suffers long and is kind. Agape does not envy. Agape does not parade itself, is not puffed up, does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, is not provoked at all in the Greek. Thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoice in the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Agape never fails. Now, you can put the name of Jesus there, you can put agape love there, and you can move through it smoothly and completely through it. I put my name in the first one, I can't go no further. Yet, when I yield to the Lord, I'm able to do these things. When I refuse to yield to the Lord, instead of God's agape love, then I manifest my love, which is very conditional. And it can't go that far. God loves selflessly and completely to benefit the one he loves. Unlike us. First John 4, 9 says, In this, the love of God was manifested towards us that God has sent his son, his only son, into the world that we might live through him. And so that's the responsibility of the Christian, constantly dying to self, the crucified life, depending on him. Every day I make that decision, every, every opportunity, from the minute I get up to the minute I go to bed. God loves out of his will, not out of external attract, attractions as we, physical beauty or sexuality. God does not move like that. First John 4.10 says, And this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. God's always the initiator. And the word propitiation goes back to the Hebrew aspect of sacrifice. That which appeased or satisfied or met the requirements for God to be able to have contact with us and we with him. It, it really met the requirement, the death of Jesus Christ. That gave us an opportunity to be one with God. God is all-powerful, all-knowing, and all-present. Therefore, he, he, when He loves us, he, know, he loves us knowing everything about us, even our motives. Now, sometimes we choose to love and everything is great and we have certain information and we, we yield to the Lord and it works out good. But then after that fact, if we come into other information that alters us, we go, I can't believe that guy. But God knows everything about me and he knows 
every motive of my heart, and He still loves me. God is so different from us. And yet, as we yield to Him as believers, there are times when we can be just like Him. As He works through us. And we're the better for that. And so is everybody else around us. God's all-powerful and knowing. Isaiah 46.10 says, Declaring the end from the beginning, from the ancient of times, things that are not, not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will do all my pleasure. Now, there are two, two, two ways that's fulfilled. First, there are absolute things that are going to be fulfilled regardless whether you pray, you agree, whether you love God or not, doesn't matter. Prophecy, the second coming, the first coming, the temple, those things are absolute. But then on the flip side of that is the will of God for you, through you, in you, and for you. That is up to you whether you yield to the Lord and I yield to the Lord. Sometimes I, I obey the Lord and when I don't, I'm the one that misses that, right? And as we'll get to it, it's because God gives us a free will of choice. He forces no one. You can't force someone to love you. You can't force someone to stay married to you. You can't force someone to be your husband or wife. It's a mutual voluntary choice. So love, the greatest degree. God sought Adam after the fall, as you know, and as a broken-hearted father, not as some policeman ready to punish. The Lord God called out and said, Where are you? In Genesis 3.9. Not that God didn't know where he was or behind what tree. But that Adam might reflect and say, Where are you now in relationship to me? I told you, if you do this, you're going to be dead. First spiritually. Second, the physical death began. Immediately, he was separated. Immediately, he began to die physically. When a child is born... We celebrate their birth. It's the first day of their death. They're dying, 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 dying. And one day they really die. You've been dying for the number of years of your age. One of these days, you're really going to die altogether. <laughs> That's the consequences of what the Hebrew says. Now, God inquired of Adam, as you know, looking for acknowledgement and confession of his sin. While all along knowing the truth about the entire process and the event that took place. So people say, well, why do I have to if God knows everything? Because God wants you to agree with Him. When you agree with God, when you confess with God and I, it's not because He needs information. It's because I agree with Him and I let Him know it. He heard His voice in the garden. I heard your voice. I was afraid because I was naked. I hid myself. And He said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of that which I command you not to? And the man said, it's the woman whom you gave me. She gave me of the tree and I ate. Genesis 3, 10 through 12. You see, now they're in their fallen nature. They're not in that innocent state. So now, to own up to sin and fault and failure, you always, company always is, is much better. So we want to blame people. We want to excuse. We want to justify ourselves. That's the sinful nature. God desires confession. God gave them the promise of redemption, first of all. The birth of His Son, the seed of the woman in Genesis 3.15. Before the consequences came, He gave the promise of redemption. His love is so different than ours. Completely. God brought forth the consequence of their sin after that. As He told them that they were occurring. To the woman, He multiplied sorrow and conception. God never intended that. 
now fallen that would come. And pain and suffering for childbearing. Your desire shall be for your husband. So now, prior to the fall, everything would be in harmony. Now after the fall, now the woman's desire is to usurp authority of the man. And then it says, in your desire, meaning Adam, shall be, uh, shall be for your husband, the ruling, and he shall rule over you. So the battle of the sexes didn't start in the roaring 20s. It's back in Genesis. It wasn't in the 60s. All of a sudden, now in a fallen nature, the woman wants to control, to tower, to usurp over the man. And the man wants to enslave and control. And so you have the battle. There is a sin nature. Only God can turn that around. As we agree with him, we line ourselves up with him. And so to Adam he said, because you have heeded the voice of your wife, you have eaten of the tree which I command you, saying you shall not eat of it. Curses the ground for your sake, toiling you shall eat the days of your life. And he goes on to speak about the thorns of thistles, and that from dust he was taken, dust he'll return. So all of a sudden what was meant to be nothing, nothing of, start, of hard labor, it is now because of the curse. And what we see around in the world today, the only way the world makes sense is if we believe the fall. If we don't believe the fall, then you have to invent a system like evolution, anthropology, sociology, psychology. And it doesn't line up with scripture. But if you believe the scripture in the fall, then the world makes perfect sense. You understand why people kill people. You understand why people are evil. Because of the fall. All the evidence that is found points to the fall. You agree with God. You know, then they just executed two New York policemen, I believe, yesterday. From that great liberal parade that said, what do we want? Dead cops. When? Now. Are you going to tell me man is good? Good for nothing. The evidence all around us. Evil. The world. The greatest number. God's the creator of this world. Every human being ever born. These babies I just dedicated. God created them. A man and a woman come together and those chromosomes come together. And that little child is so much like the father, so much like the mother. And then they start growing up and you look across the room and he looks, he's standing just like you. They're, you know, amazing. For in him we live, we move, we have our being, as also some of your own prophets have said. For we are also his offspring. Paul is quoting the uh, Greek poets to them. God has not left us without a witness. We're without excuse. God is able to love with concern, intimacy, and individuality without ever confusing and then cause us to turn to Him if we call on His name. Stop and think about it. Everybody can pray to God at the same time and God never has to say, hang on, hang on, wait a minute. Did, what would you ask? I forgot. Wait, wait. He can hear everybody at the same time. Deal with it. That's beyond our understanding. That's the kind of God we serve here. In fact, in Revelation 3.20, it says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hears my voice and opens that door, I will come in to him and dine with him and he with me. Now, we use that always for evangelism, but it's out of context. The context is Jesus has been kicked out of the church. And he's knocking on the door of individual hearts to let them back in. 
It's one of the churches of the book of Revelation. God is fully aware that man is rebellious against him from the beginning of time. God doesn't live in denial or some ideal world. He signed it with very clear scripture prior to the flood and nothing and the flood changed nothing. Listen to Genesis 6, 5. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil once in a while. No, continually. Continually. That he gave the greatest act. He gave man life as he created him. From the ground and breathe into the nostrils the breath of life, Genesis 2 7 said. It's amazing when someone breathes his last, and I've been there many times. In that body, you realize no one's there anymore. Something happens as soon as that spirit is removed. God gave the promise of redemption from the beginning to be forgiven, the seed of the woman. That's the promise of the virgin birth in Genesis 3.15. From the beginning, God gave that promise, the need of forgiveness of sins. Christianity is not just to change your life. I know that we use that as a primary witness tool, and there's nothing wrong with the witness of your life, what he's done, but... There are people who are religious whose life has been changed radically. There are people who are committed to AA. And those that are staying committed to the principles, their life has changed radically. We say, well, you know, no one dies for a lie. Well, yes, they do. Muslims die every day. The jihadists. What is the true witness and evidence of our Christianity? Are you ready? It's the scriptures. This is God's word. It's able to forgive you of all your sins. Not just come to change your life. Come to give you a new heart through the forgiveness of sins. That's the key. God gave his son Jesus to die in our place. Place for sinners. John the Baptist's cousin said, Behold the Lamb of God, which takes away the sins of the world in John 1.29. Every Hebrew, every disciple right there of John understood in their mind they saw a man bringing an animal, tying it to a pole, taking his neck, cutting it with his own hands, blood going up, animal hitting the ground, taking that blood, putting it on the horns of the altar, flaying the thing, putting it up there, the atonement, fellowship with God. Wow. God schooled them for 2,000 years and they missed their Messiah. Brian McLaren, one of the leading authors and spokesman for the Emergent Church, and those of you who are playing with the Emergent Church, listen carefully what he believes about the atonement, calling himself a Christian. No, he's not a Christian. Listen. McLaren asks, how can punishing an innocent person make things better? That just sounds like one more injustice in the cosmic equation. It sounds like divine child abuse, you know? Blasphemous. 
emerging church leaders. Hmm. There was a father who um, wanted to read the newspaper and his um, daughter, Vanessa, was bugging him. He got so impatient that he grabbed this page out of the magazine that had a picture of the world. And he tore it up in pieces. He says, here, go in the other room and put it together. Thinking he'd buy some time. She came back quickly after and said, here it is, Dad. He was amazed. How'd you do that? He said, well, there's a picture of Jesus in the back. And once I got Jesus together, the world came together. <laughs> wow. You see, what's missing in your life is Jesus. Once Jesus comes in, it doesn't mean there's no problems. It doesn't mean that evil's gone. But it means the world makes sense. He puts it together, ladies and gentlemen. The greatness of God is unquestionable. Secondly comes the gift of God. His only begotten Son, the greatest gift. God did not give uh, one of his many angels. Hebrews 1.5 says, For to which of the angels did he say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And again I will be to him a father, and they shall be to me a son. No. God did not give any of his creatures a human being. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Romans 3.23 says, A man and a woman is a sinner. A sinner can't die for a sinner. A perfect person has to die for a sinner. One who's innocent, like that little lamb that God slew in Genesis 3.21, who didn't deserve death, but was slain to cover the nakedness of Adam and Eve and to atone for their sin. There's the token of blood. The life of the flesh is in the blood, Leviticus 17.11. And I've given it to you for an atonement upon the altar. God gave his only son, thereby being... A great price. Demonstrating the greatness of the gift. Put, Paul put it this way in Second Corinthians 9.15. Thank be to God for his indescribable gift. Now the context of that statement is in chapter 8 and 9 of Second Corinthians that deals with the financial giving of the Corinthians for the poor saints in Jerusalem as the Macedonians gave out of their poverty. And Paul says, listen... You've promised a year ago, you're still holding back. The Macedonians put you to shame. But no matter what you give or how much you give, how are you going to compare that to this indescribable gift that God gave his son? Are you a father? Do you have a son? You would much rather die than to give your son. You would willfully die than to give your son. And sometimes we forget about the pain and the suffering of the Father. Wow. That whosoever, the greatest invitation, God invites all of mankind. Anyone could come. How often we're accused as Christians of being exclusive and only inclusive for the in crowd. No, no, no. The Spirit of the Bride says, come and let him who hears say, come, and let him who thirsts come, and whoever desires, let him take of the life of waters of life freely, Revelation twenty two seventeen. That's how the Bible finishes. All inclusive. God rejects no one. Any sin can be forgiven, but it must be confessed and acknowledged and abandoned. It's called repentance. Isaiah one eighteen says, Come now, let us reason together. 
says the Lord, though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be as wool. Where in the world can you get an offer like that? Now, God doesn't remember your sin. He forgets it. You remember your sin. But it's forgiven as far as he's in the west. Deep as ocean. Behind his back. You say, well, I wish God would have me forget certain things. No, no, no. He wouldn't love you then. He loves you so much he won't let you forget that. Because if you could forget it, you would not appreciate or value the grace of God and his love. Now, you don't want to live there. So distinguish between conviction and condemnation. Conviction is when you are in sin, you're doing things you're not supposed to as a believer, and the Holy Spirit is telling you to get out of there, confess it, and abandon it. That's conviction. Condemnation is when you, other people, or Satan, rub your nose in sins that have been confessed and abandoned. No condemnation to those in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. And so you learn to distinguish between the conviction and condemnation, and you can walk side by side, hand in hand with God, thanking Him for His grace and knowing that He has made you whiter than snow. Wow. Believes the greatest simplicity. God rejects personal righteousness for redemption. No one can merit it. Isaiah 64, 6 says, But we are all like an unclean thing, and all our righteousness are like filthy rags. We all fade as a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. The word filthy rags, there is a menstrual garment. Only the Jehovah's Witness Bible translates it literally. (laughs) So next time you think your good is good, think about that. There's nothing we can present to God. You can be the most moral person, the most ethical person. You're still a sinner. You fall short of the glory. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin, Romans 3.20. See, the law, the law accuses me. You're going home right now after this, and life's going to change, and you're in between. Well, should I run it? Should I not? And you decide to run it, it's almost, I mean, you should stay behind. But ah, you hit the gas and you run it. And the man you do, you're looking around, right? Because I read, I said you're guilty, right? The sign that says, wet paint don't touch. Law provokes us to sin. You can't go in there. What? I can't go what? Little four, five month old baby. Don't touch that. They go. You know what the problem is? He's your kid. He's just like you. A rotten little sinner. So next time you go visit some babies and you put your face up against that window, a bunch of people are there, just go up and say, oh, look at a cute little sinner. That's what they are. God accepts man on the basis of faith and the promise of redemption. For it is the, in the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as written the just shall live by faith, Romans one seventeen. for the Jew and Gentile. 
Nothing but the atoning work of Jesus Christ. There's no room for boasting. No one. In Him, the greatest person. Jesus Christ is the only way. So often we're accused that the Bible is so confusing and, you know, it's not clear. And, I mean, there's, you know, many interpretations that it's not really, you know, pinpoint. Really? The matter of sin is so critical because it leads to eternal union or separation from God. And God loves man so much that he made it very, very clear. Jesus said in John 14, 6, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father but by me. How many interpretations can you get from that? The only way. The only truth. The only life. In Acts 4.12, Peter says, There is no other name given under heaven and earth whereby we must be saved. How many names? One. First Timothy 2.5. There is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. How many mediators? One. To me, it's real simple, real clear. One way, one name, one mediator. There's no excuse on Judgment Day for anyone who says, you didn't make it clear. You made it too complicated. I'll tell you what is complicated, Obamacare. Now that's complicated. Okay? Now if God would have given us a Bible like Obamacare, we might have some excuses. The legacy of John Wesley was the Church of England of the 18th century that compromised with the Enlightenment period. and was, um, He was educated at Oxford University. And um, he was in ministry about 12 years, unconverted. His father advised him that if he wanted to make a good living, he should go in the clergy, High Church of England. And he even came to the United States to convert the Indians, him being unconverted himself. And he came over with the Moravian Christians, incredible Christians from Germany. And uh, when he went back, um, he attended on May 24th of 1738 uh, a meeting of religious society at Aldersgate uh, Street in London. And, and, and here is his words as he is born again. He says, In the evening, I went very willing, unwillingly to the society of Aldersgate Street. There one was reciting Luther's uh, preface over the Epistle of the Romans. About a quarter uh, before nine, while he was describing the ch- change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warm. I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for salvation. And an assurance was given to me that he had taken away my sin, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. That's conversion. What is a witness? The scriptures. The absolute scriptures. God's word. The gift of God is all inclusive, ladies and gentlemen. If you're here today, you don't know Jesus Christ. I don't care what has happened. I don't care what has been done to you. I don't care what you have done. The blood of Jesus Christ can cleanse you and forgive you and turn your life around. Third, we have the goal of God. Should not perish. The greatest deliverance. God made Gehenna for Satan and his angels, as you know, not for any man. Matthew 25, 41 tells us that. And yet in spite of that, you're going to have millions and billions of people in the lake of fire when God never intended to be there. It's by their own choosing, by rejecting the gospel. 
God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked and how often God is charged. Well, what God's just up there just, you know, kind of taking pleasure on the suffering of the world. Why doesn't he do this? Why doesn't he just clear everything up? Because he's given man a free choice and he's made a way to do it through his son. Listen to Ezekiel um, 33:11. Say to them, as I live, says the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways, for why should you die, O house of Israel? Now, the context is to Israel that's in bondage, but the principle applies to every person, every sinner straight across. And the plea is throughout the scriptures to turn, to repent. God does not delight in the eternal torments of those who are lost. How often that, we, again, God is accused of that. In the book of Revelation, for those that are going through the tribulation, great tribulation, it, it speaks very specific about them, but it applies for being in torment to all who reject Christ. Uh, in Revelation 14, 10, and 11, it says, He himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out in full strength into the cup of his indignation. And he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of his angels and the presence of the Lamb. First of all, get your theology right. Hell and Gehenna, the lake of fire, is not run by Satan. It's run by Jesus. It's a place of punishment, not reward. All right? Very, very simple. And it says, And the smoke of their torment ascended forever and ever, and they have no rest day and night. It's forever. Why well, can't believe a God all tough? You think God's bothered by your opinion? God is holy. He has to judge sin. If you don't trust that he judged it on his son, then you're saying he can judge you for it. It's a choice. But the greatest difference, one little word. God created man with the potential of choice and free will. As I said earlier, you cannot force someone to love you. You certainly cannot force someone to stay married to you. You can't force someone to be loyal and faithful to you. It must be of one's own free will. Genesis two sixteen and 17, The Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden which you may freely eat, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Literally, dying you shall die. God honors man's exercise of his own free will. God is not like us. When he offers you a choice, whatever you choose, he honors it. He's not like us. You know, we're going to go out to dinner. And so we tell our wife and our kids, okay, where do you guys want to go? Your wife says, let's go to, uh, let's go to Northwood. Nah, I don't want to go there. Where do you guys want to go, kids? And then one says, well, how about here? Like, nah, nah, nah. And they all turn to you and say, well, where do you want to go? Well, let's go here. Okay, well, you got them. Great choice you gave him, nothing. God's not like that. God says, you want to go to heaven or you want to go to hell? Wow. You have all, all the right to go to hell. But you don't have to go there. You can't go to heaven. You determine where you go. Everything's been done. In fact, in Isaiah one eighteen, as he speaks about Crimson and white as snow. In verse 19 and 20, 
He says, if you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be devoured by the sword for the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. It's always a choice. God acts on the basis of man's free will. Joshua entering the land, as you know, in Joshua twenty four fifteen. The first generation died in the wilderness 40 years. Only two men, Joshua and Caleb, entered in over 20 years of age. He's speaking to the second generation that's going in. The ones that their parents thought they were going to die, but they didn't. They inherited. He's speaking to them. And listen to what he says. Joshua twenty four fifteen. <clears throat> and if it seems evil to you to serve the Lord, Yahweh, choose for yourself this day whom you will serve, whether the gods which your father served that were on the other side of the river. So they were all pagan. Abraham was a pagan. He was a Gentile. He wasn't a Jew by, by nature. Or the gods of the Amorites, those in the land, in whose lands you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. It's a choice. Whether you serve the Lord or not. I don't know how many years you've been walking with God. But you decide daily whether you're going to walk with God or not. As your children are grown and they come to adulthood, they have to decide whether they're going to walk with God or not. It's an individual thing. Sometimes families are saved completely in faithfulness and repentance. Others, not everybody walks. And it's very hard. But God respects your choice. Have the greatest certainty. God promised that whoever believes in the Son has God as his friend. James put it this way, James 2.23. And the scripture was fulfilled which said Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness and he was called a friend of God. Jesus said to the disciples, I no longer call you my servants but friends. Wow. That you and I can be friends of God. That we can be one with God. Him being the epitome of holiness, you and I being the epitome of sinfulness. But he has a righteous basis by which he makes that transaction because he laid all my sins upon the Son and poured out his wrath. My God, my God, why has thou forsaken me? A couple of verses down, Psalm 22, because you are holy. And the Son became sin. And the Father for the first time was separated from the Son and the Son from the Father. Something that we can't understand until we get there. For you and for me. Wow. The promise is that if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness of 1 John 1, 9. Therefore, we are justified by faith. We have peace with God through Lord Jesus Christ, Romans 5, 1. Just as if I never had sin, though I still remember, God forgets my sin. That I might admire Him, praise Him, and worship Him all the days of my life. Everlasting life. The greatest possession. God's primary emphasis on eternal life is quality first, then quantity. Every time you read through the scriptures, a Christ-like life. The minute you were born again, or the minute you open your heart and are born again, you will experience from that point on a quality of life that you didn't experience before, being one with God, hearing the voice of God, knowing right from wrong, knowing that He's coming, knowing the judgment of God, and you will live differently as you depend and trust on Him. So eternal life primarily, up front, talks about a quality, a Christ-like life. 
Secondly means life without end. When we are passed from this life and our body is put away, we will be instantly present with the Lord in 2 Corinthians 1 through 5. It will be forever. But primarily first is the quality of life. You know, often we ask a, a person, we say, are you a Christian? Oh, yeah. Don't ask that question anymore. We, we, we're, we're, we're immune to that question. Say, are you Christ-like? I'll go, what? Because that's what Christian means. Are you Christ-like? They'll think twice before they answer you yes. You see, vocabulary, we can become immune to it. It becomes irrelevant, insignificant. Because everybody calls themselves a Christian. Hmm. God's will is that um, all have eternal life with God, not separated from Him. It breaks God's heart when people perish. Yet He gives a choice. You know, the distance between the earth and the moon is said to be 239,000 miles and, and takes about 27.3 days for the moon to complete a full revolution around the earth. And it takes uh, exactly the same time <clears throat> for the moon to spin once on its own axis. This means that the moon remains at a standstill in relationship to the earth's movement so that it always presents the same face to the earth. In Christmas of 1968, the year I graduated high school, astronaut Frank Borman, William Anders, and James Lovell became the first men to see with their own eyes the hidden side of the moon. So impressed were they of God's creation that they read Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens, the earth, and so on and so forth all the way. What an amazing, amazing rebuke to evolution and everything else that the first time they saw the other side of the moon, they read Genesis 1.1. In the very same way, God wants you to, re to reveal to you if you don't know Jesus Christ. He wants to reveal His Son to you that has been hidden from you due to your own darkness. That you acknowledge your own darkness and desire to be in the light of God. It's an invitation to love. That's his desire. But again, he doesn't compel you because he honors your choice. The goal of God is man's salvation. Nothing short of that. Can you see why Luther called John 3.16 the heart of the Bible, the gospel, in miniature form? And that it's so simple a child can understand it and so condensed and deep and marvelous truths of redemption with these few pugnant words as we've covered. God, the greatest lover, so love. The greatest degree, the world, the greatest number that he gave, the greatest act. The only begotten son, the greatest gift, that whosoever, the greatest invitation. Believes the greatest simplicity in him, the greatest person. Should not perish the greatest deliverance, but the greatest difference. Have the greatest certainty, everlasting life, the greatest possession. Wow. One little verse. Powerful. 
all the gospels there. Now you go home and try to write a verse that includes everything. <laughs> Needed for life. Wow. Twelve particulars declared by Luther here about John 3.16. The three categories are the greatest, the greatness of God. It's unquestionable. The gift of God is all inclusive. The goal of God, man's salvation. To us as believers, Christmas is every day. Today is no different than any other Sunday. <laughs> to us. But to religious people, people who look for holidays, and yet all attack is against Christianity. I think that even they've got now they're going to call it Sparkle Day too instead of Christmas. It's amazing, Sparkle Day. Whatever they call it, whatever they die, it doesn't matter. The gospel still goes forth. God will still save people if their hearts are open. We pray your heart will be open right now. Father, thank you for your grace and your goodness. And Lord, we pray for everybody here. We ask that you would deal with our hearts. We thank you for just your goodness, Lord, and your love. And Lord, I pray that you would just uh, minister to those who perhaps don't know you, Lord. And they open their heart to you and call on your name. As you're praying, if you're here and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, God has brought you here to be saved, to repent of your sins. Maybe you're over the internet. If you believe Jesus is God who became man, died for your sins and rose from the dead, you are a candidate for salvation. You can call upon him and he will forgive you. He'll give you a brand new heart and make you his child. But it's done individually, by your own mouth, through your own heart. If you want to be born again, you can repeat this prayer right where you sit right now. He will save you. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me, Lord, for all my sins. Give me a brand new heart. Fill me with your spirit. I accept you as my Savior and Lord. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. If you made that decision, we want to welcome you to the family. We'd love to do one thing, give you a Bible. My right, your left. Stephen and his bride will be there. They'll give you that Bible. Share some important things for your growth. Answer questions you might have. Pray for you. You're free to leave. Your loved ones and friends will wait for you. But don't leave here the same way you came in. I'm surprised the Lord hasn't come back before I finish the third service. He's coming, you know. He said he would. And he can't lie. Are you looking for your groom? You ready for the wedding? I sure hope so. I've done many weddings and I've never seen a bride dragged up. All of them have walked up with a big smile. Sparkling in their eyes. Let's stand. We'll close in worship. If you accept the Lord, please go over there. And tonight we will be... Uh,
looking at the kids' um, play tonight, come and uh, invite somebody. It's amazing what kids do to grandparents and uh, friends and, and adults. And then Wednesday, of course, we'll have our, uh, our Christmas Eve service at 5 o'clock. Don't forget that. Let's stand.